rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. This programme is to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the passing of Donald McCann. Donald was celebrated as the finest Irish stage actor of his generation. He epitomised a strong modern Irish theatre tradition of intense but unforced acting, in which creation of character depends more on empathy with the core personality than contrived mannerism. From the mid-1980s, he became fixed in the public mind as the quintessential performer of Sean O'Casey's Irish classics. He had a disarmingly easy fluency in O'Casey's dialogue and the musical nuances of working-class Dublin accents. But most of all, he had an exemplary timing, which carried scenes that could otherwise fall flat. His last great role, as Thomas, in Sebastian Barry's The Steward of Christendom, prompted Newsweek to describe him as the greatest actor in the English-speaking world. The play was a huge success in Britain, America and Australia, as well as Ireland. My name is Tina Kelleher and I had the pleasure of working with him in that play. Tonight I hope to guide you through memories, vignettes or sketches if you will, that etch a portrait of a complex and complicated man. This is Sketches of Donal. The newspapers this morning all carried tributes to the actor Donal McCann, who died yesterday. It just so happens that it's 20 years uh, since Donald McCann died. Sebastian Barry. And um, I, I'm with Einstein on that theory of time, though I'm not sure. Uh, there is such thing as narrative time or time going by. And if we could only just walk through the right door, we might still find those people whom, whom we adore and continue to adore, difficult as they may have been. Unfortunately for you, I have to briefly, I was going to briefly begin with a scrap of his favourite song, While I Knew Him. I don't think it would be his favourite song while I'm singing it, but you know. (laughs) Would you know my name when I see you in heaven? Would it be the same? When I see you in heaven, I must be strong. I must be strong and carry on. Cause I know I don't belong here in heaven. And I'm not in a rush. No, I'm. As I sit here, I'm not ambitious for anything. Had I the heavens embroidered cloth, inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dream. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, the original uh, idea of being going backstage and, and seeing ordinary people taking off makeup and and then some nights going in and seeing them putting them on, putting it on, you know. Yeah, very hackney, again, cliche sort of, introduction to the theatre I, I, I just found it irresistible Donald talking to Andy O'Mahony this is Hugh Leonard Bernardo Bertolucci Gabriel Byrne Rachel Dowling Jim Sheridan and Michael D Higgins Donald is one of these guys who really cares about what he plays but he doesn't care about his, uh, his standing or his, his fame or his stellar rating Donald McCann entered, and immediately I felt for him, I felt, I found my artist. You felt that as an actor he was incapable of telling a lie uh, in a performance. People were saying to me, God, you're working with John Huston, are you terrified? And 
you know, because he was such a, an imposing character. And I remember thinking, I'm not a bit scared of John Hughes. I'm terrified of Donald McCann. <laughs> in terms of actors, like, he's definitely the best actor in Ireland in the last 50 years, I think, you know. What you have in the intensity of the performance is an invitation uh, to magic. Ah! Oh, under the bed, huh? The right place for a guilty conscience. Your wedding bell. Look, pretty, isn't it? I'll take your last oil of it now, for it's going west quick. Oh, no, tell you, no, no, not to pay a little uh, bit. It'd be a pity, wouldn't it? Well, damn it, and damn you! I'm off now to smash out my mist. Where you'll have a gay time fitting out the little home be the time your loving husband comes back. I'm inclined to think that, that people who don't see things the way I see them, I'm inclined to regard them as... as frankly stupid, you know. Which is not fair, of course, when you think about it, but... but if I'm going to do a play, I take a long time to get ready for it, and and so I'm I'm a terrible bore because I, I I usually know everybody else's lines as well, and and I, I mean I know the text. Oedipus has sex with his mother, and what he says, I'm sorry, he tears his eyes out. Othello thinks his wife and Cassio, he thinks, and he kills her and himself. Hamlet. Everybody dies. Phaedra, these are plays. So why don't you do these plays? Why? Because nobody wants to see them, that's why. But that doesn't take away from their endings. Actually, just, just a word in a night, or the shape of a sentence, or the tiny difference in the length of a pause or something, and it's amazing to find, and a mistake, that will work much better than you actually intended anything. And so that becomes one of your master strokes, you know? <laughs> it's absurd, and people say, you know, how did you think of that? And it's because you couldn't think of anything. <laughs> you know? Jerry Stembridge talking to Donal in Bob Quinn's documentary, It Must Be Done Right. Donald McCann. Kieran Hines. What a man. Uh, I, I'm really met, I crossed Donald just to say hello to her. I was introduced, and I know Donald had this extraordinary reputation and was the actor of actors in the 80s. And I was cast to be his brother in a film called December Bride up in the north of Ireland. And it was one of the first films I think they'd made in the north of Ireland for 30 years. And I remember meeting Donald the first time. It was at a screen test because they were testing for who was going to play the girl in it with the two brothers. I wasn't sure if I'd been cast or not. It turned out that I had been, but I wasn't sure. But I was coming off the back of working on the Mahabharata. So I had really long hair and a beard, dark. And Donald, I think, had been doing fluter. And he had this little kind of Hitler moustache and a really short haircut. So it was weird. I was there looking like Jesus. And he was there with a little Hitler moustache. And we, we were supposed to be <laughs> sort of... 1890s in the north of Ireland and when we went to work on it Donald had always this because he was such a wry man and very droll very witty brilliant and um, it was this thing I don't know I I felt like well I'm just who I am I have to go to work and it all would be fine and I found myself so warmed by him I I just felt this is just going to be lovely because he's strong he's sharp and there's no need to me to feel any difference. We'll just be brothers. And I'm the younger brother, and that's probably a good thing. I started watching Donald in rehearsals. David Harley. I said, this is the actor. This is the kind of actor I would like to be. In an ideal world, whatever this man is doing, I want to learn about that technique and that process. For me, Donald was, was, became a real a role model. And then I had the good fortune to work with him again when he was playing Flute or Good in, in um, The Plough and the Stars. I played uh, the Covey, the young Covey. And again, it was, I saw that as an integral part of my apprenticeship. And I spent many nights, particularly actually in Juno, but, but also in Plough, when I wouldn't be on stage, I'd stand at the side of the stage and I'd watch him. What is he doing? What, how is he negotiating the, the, the journey of the character? And 
I think for me, what, what was remarkable about Donald was he really, not alone did he inhabit the role, but he was present. You felt he was really present. Like when you were opposite him, it was like you were just standing with this character. I mean, Donald was, it was, he was an actor, but he was just so present. He was so rooted. I knock up and let you demean yourself by talking to a titted and chance. This is outside your province. You leave this to Fluta. This is a man's job. Now, if you've anything to say, say it to Fluta. And let me tell you, you're not going to be past remarkable to any lady that's in my company. Sure, I don't care if you are running all night after your mail either calling her. But when you start telling luscious lawyers about what you're doing for the labour movement, it's nearly time to show you up. Is it you, show flute, or will you wind on a big two year before me breakfast? Tell us where you're better you're dead, will you? Oh, sing a little less on the high note, or when I'm done with you, you'll put a questionable construction on things, I'm telling you. You're a big fella, you are. Only you're tempting providence when you're tempting flute. Easy with them hands there, easy with them hands. You're starting to take a little risk when you commence the part of Covey. Right! Come on, you lousy. Put up your mitts if there's a man's blood and you be good. You'll soon see some snots flying round here, I'm telling you. When Fluter's done with you, you'll have a voice, a verse, an opinion of him. Come on, now. Come on. Well, he used to eat the text. He would keep it in his pocket and chew it and thumb it and mark it and think about it and meditate on it for hours and hours on end. Particularly things like the names in Faith Healer or the cadences in O'Casey and how to balance the laughter. He really worked extremely hard and ultimately he had a fantastic concept of clarity that when he reached the performance pitch it was going to be very clear what he was doing. So, And it was a mixture of intellect and emotion and instinct, all of those, and a great sense of humour behind it as well. And he had not learned his part as such before rehearsal, but for a very good reason. He didn't allow himself to. He wanted to let it learn itself. He wanted the surprises and mysteries of that osmosis. He had sat with the script for a thousand hours already in his little house in Glasnevin, where he lived with his partner, Fidel McCullen, the gentlest woman in Ireland. The script was scrawled in, neatly written on, much coffee cupped or maybe tea cupped, scuffed, folded, no doubt when he had stuffed it into his outrageously elderly leather jacket, like all his clothes obliged to do permanent service, as if a man could by law only ever purchase one jacket per life. <laughs> it was thrilling for a writer to go to this house in the months before rehearsal as an extension of the programme begun in the step down in. In fact, for the veritable cross-pollination between his imagination and my own, and view this ferociously attended to document which you had written, thrown carefully to his side on the couch as he variously watched the races at Sandown or the Curragh or wherever the horses were running that day, threw remarks back over his right shoulder to Fidelma, who might be scanning the papers at their table, or offered to me his opinions of things he was reading, Colin McCann's tiny story watching the slow black river about mothers fishing for their sons being a discovery I remember him expounding on for a space much longer than the actual story. It was utterly thrilling. I never play parts. I do, I do bits of plays. I do plays. And I have never ever accepted anything purely because something was a part. You know, somebody says, "Oh, you got a great part in that." And it's, it, it could be the best part in the world if it, if it was in a bad play. I wouldn't do it. Mm. I have no ambition to be. People used to people used to say years ago, the play was terrible, but you were wonderful. You know, that sort of uh, nonsense has never appealed to me, and and probably appeal less to the guy who wrote the play. But I have no. I will refuse to 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 be anything apart from myself I know just acting is something I can do thank God but it frightens me because I'm very good at it and I'm, I'm a bit terrified about how good I might get I wrote The Miracle which I kind of wrote with Donald you know I was thinking of him as playing that part you know Neil Jordan there's a shot in the end where he's playing the saxophone in the dance hall, yeah. Donald, of course, hadn't learned the fingering, but there was one touch he did. He stuck a cigarette 
in one little piece of the mechanism, you know, and he plays this whole soul. He's hardly moving his fingers. He's hardly even blowing. But you can see the cigarette ash grow and grow and grow and grow, you know what I mean? And that kind of little detail kind of made him the musician in a strange way, you know? And it's stuff like that that he, he does that can be extraordinary. These salesmen came along and they were selling coffins. But they had a, a funny way of selling coffins. They'd take your hand, they'd read your palm, work out how long you had to live. And then they'd work out some payment installment plan so you could buy your own coffin. They read mine. There are very few people whom I would refer to as fellow actors. On the grounds of... of, of uh, I'm a very impatient person when it comes to work. And I, I mean, say like John Cavanagh, John, in, in, in Juno, I mean, straight away we knew what we were doing. What is the status? What is the status? You can talk about Captain Boyle and Jocks are they're essentially two bits of the same person, so the char the characters become a character. For Donald, as his friend Stephen Ray once said to me, doing a play was life and death. He didn't perform in your play. He used his selected text as a slippery manual of retrieval and ultimate survival, like the awful instructions for some impossible homemade rocket. He placed himself in this veritably toxic nuclear stew of memory and reference, thereby, by miraculous courage, to remake himself and in doing so, bizarrely almost, but certainly wonderfully, bring back from the cold hand of ordinary death a character both unmissed with no known grave, but also in being shown in all his ambiguity and contradiction by this alchemy of Donal, suddenly in theatre form, understood, humanly seen, loved by the audience. I adored Donal. He was warm, fun, impatient at work. He expected the very best. He treated the theatre with the reverence that you treat the church. He was always really early at the theatre, as was I, and uh, we'd have our catch-up every evening, we're probably first there. And I think back about Donal, or things that always remind me of Donal are little short, stubby pencils that you get out of the bookie office. Half-sucked fisherman's friends that you'd find in the wings that he'd, be la he'd leave there until you finish them off and he'd get back out again generosity of the man and the great talent of the man. I have no ambitions, really. I think ambition is a... except like the rest of us. I mean, uh, my only ambition is to, is to be at peace with God, really. I mean, I was terribly disappointed that on, on the last night of June on the Paycock when, when he didn't strike me dead because I thought that was something I'd I've always said, if if you know if you're going to do something, do it well, so that in case you get short taken, at least you'd be taken out doing something good. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to have marks mm -hmm. for rather than against. I was very disappointed the way yeah. the next morning. In June, O'Donnell at in the gate, you'd see him, and he'd come down from he'd come in from the dressing room. He was in the in dressing room number one with. Uh, with John, I think. Anyway, they were downstairs and myself and the younger actors were upstairs. You'd come down the stairs and you'd be waiting to go on and then Donald would sort of come out of the dressing room and then he'd go up the stairs towards the stage 
and he'd kind of sit on the stairs with his leg kind of hanging down and he'd be kind of scratching himself and sitting there and kind of just looking into the middle distance and rubbing his nose and everything like that, you know, pulling up his trousers and adjusting the belt. And, and you watched him and you said, he's, he's going back. This is, he's, going, he's going into the world of O'Casey. When he emerges on stage, he will literally be coming up a stairwell and emerging onto this stage into a tenement. I found that mesmeric. Because I knew that you wouldn't dare say anything to him because he'd say, he's going there now. He's going into the zone. He's preparing. He's not doing voice exercises or jumping up and down. He's just quietly sitting there and, you know, immersing himself in the character. Well, we won't be long pulling ourselves together now when I'm working for a few weeks. Oh, man, the job is a nail butty of jocks. I have an idea, you know, myself. Oh, there's a button off the back of me moleskin trousers. If you leave out a needle and settle sold on yourself. Well, I speak to God, the pain to me legs is gone anyhow. Look at here, Mr. Jackie Boyle. Them yarns won't go down with you, no. I know you and Jocks are daily even nowadays. And if you think you're able to come it over me with the fairy tales, huh? you're in the wrong shop. Oh. Butty you Jocks. Oh, you do a lot of good as long as you continue to be a butty you Jocksers. Shovel! Then me, boy, you do far more work with a knife and fork than ever you do with a shovel. Mm. If there was ever a genuine job going, you'd be the other way about. Not able to lift your arms and the pains in your legs. You're poor wife slaving to keep the bit in your mouth and you gallivanting about from morning till night like a peacock. Well, I mean, better for the man to be dead. Better for the man to be dead. I do remember the first time I saw him on a stage. Sinead Cusack. I don't remember the play. It was at the Queen's Theatre and I think I was about 16. And I saw this man, young man, walk across the stage and I was just riveted by whatever magic it is that he has, and it is magic. And I don't know what makes up that magic, but he has it, and he's always had it. His mall hall in Strumpet City, have a look at it. Brian Murray. He was playing, he was playing older than he was, but you didn't, it, you didn't think that, that for a second. It, he was the character. He had an ability to kind of to inhabit the characters that he played. And he would, do, he would do little small strange things, whether it was kind of, he'd do a lot of that. And he'd wipe his face with his hand. When, you, when Donald was on stage, you kind of couldn't take your eyes off him, really. That's fair, isn't it? Some people is blessed and no mistake. You all right? I remember that time always with, with Donal when we were picked up from the wee hotel we were in going to work he'd always have a copy of The Faith Healer in his pocket going to work. And I was asked him, I said, um, you've done The Faith Healer, right? didn't you do it in the early 80s? He said, I did, yeah, but I was too young then. And so he said, knowing then that he was going to have another go at it when he felt right, which indeed he did, which I did have the joy to see and which was extraordinary. Uh, but I just remember, he was always keeping that close, like just looking at so the the feeling of the words would never go away because there's a lot of them and he was preparing well in advance. I thought, well, I thought Faith Healer was nearly going to put that tin hat on me because I thought just standing there and, and saying this stuff but not saying it, it, it became uh, 
it literally became it became part of me i don't believe in in all that nonsense i am the character and thing but actually it it the whole thing applied to me in some way and it, which made me think that i have huge similarities with with, with uh, mr Freel because it it meant an awful lot just by dint of repetition and reading you know suddenly yeah i i i i knew what what he was talking about he didn't he told me at times that that performance had clarified certain sections for him which is flattering but but i mean it it, it, it was quite obsessive you know do you, do you like to to read around about it do you just work with the text itself I think if you're doing a play, you're doing the text. You're mm. doing what the man wrote, and you, and and that's that's the commitment. Or should be the commitment of of, of an actor is to, is to what what is written. Acting is such a selective or uh, you know thing. You, you you can people will like one actor and not like another, and and I, it would be invidious for me to sort of talk about individual actors. But one of the 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 most exciting experiences of my um, life was working with Donald McCann on Faith Healer. Uh, Donald, John Cavan and Kate Flynn the th- were the tr- three we had in Faith Theatre and the three of them uh, were so exciting to work with but particularly the kind of part that Donald's was uh, it, it was quite extraordinary to watch that master actor uh, operate from, from the first day of rehearsal right through to the, to, to the end he's a very, very fine um, actor he's an extraordinary actor As we drove along those narrow winding roads I'd recite the names to myself for the mesmerism the sedation of the incantation. And when we started out, oh, years, years ago, we used to have Francis Hardy, seventh son of a seventh son across the top. But it made the poster too expensive, and Teddy persuaded me to settle for the modest. Fantastic. I mean, I'll never forget the, the end of the first night doing that in, in the Abbey when someone had sort of rung up at a strange hour, and somebody I really didn't want to think about to say that they were going to be in the audience, and it was it was threatening. I took it as being threatening, anyway. And I just played it straight down with the pauses and looking for something, trying to think of the right word. I would take very long pauses and do that kind of thing. And, and the person who had rung up and frightened me, I got a letter then saying, how did you know exactly where I was sitting? <laughs> there has been an enormous emotional price to pay. And that in itself for an audience is, elicits a sort of tremendous love, you might say, for the actor. Because you, you have a person that is intensely ordinary, but ordinary, who is prepared to go through those fires. As for the seventh son, that was a lie. I was, in fact, the only child of elderly parents, Jack and Mary Hardy, born in the village of Kilmeady in County Limerick, where my father was sergeant of the guards. But that's another story. Stage was blacked off. It was quite a small stage. And the walk then from the edge of the stage to the stage, to the door off the stage area was long and a very dim light, especially having been out there for half an hour. And I suddenly got hit with this ice cold thing here and a red hot thing here. And I, I didn't know what... Uh, and it was uh, Dr. Freel with his gin and tonic and his lips. <laughs> I, I sort of, I sort of advanced the stage that night. I think he played um, Francis Hardy. In, he made that role in Faith Healer, and you see the journey that Francis Hardy goes in Faith Healer. And when you when you when you spoke with Donald, and when you when you sort of when you saw the the kind of man that he was and how seriously he took his work, you know you knew that he suffered. He knew, he knew that he had a gift. It's a it's a kind of cliche. He he suffered for his art. But he willingly suffered for it, and he gave, he gave everything to it, and you could see that. 
So, yeah, I think he's, if not the best, he's certainly one of the best we've ever had. How much have you had to drink? Oh, hardly anything. We tried to go to the man with the golden gun. It wasn't on. It went to the museum instead. It wasn't a success. So you drank instead? I love you, Elizabeth. You loved her? She was nothing. Nothing at all. I have never not loved you, Elizabeth. She said that to me at the end. She pointed it out to me before she went away. Now listen to me. Every week I long for Sunday to arrive. We're a family, Elizabeth. You, me, them. This is ridiculous, all this ridiculous buying ice creams going forever to the zoo. You have reasonable access. We agreed between us. Reasonable access, my God! Reasonable access is utterly no good to me! Reasonable access is meaningless, stupid. They will come, Elizabeth. They won't want to go with me on a Sunday. What about reasonable access then? You know, around that time, you're, you're pot-hopping around and you're free and you're working in England and you're learning. You're, you're learning how to drink in order to give it up, you know? <laughs> the Abbey actors got a rise Pat of something around 100% in their salaries or more in 1964. So suddenly, from having to go to the box office to borrow a pound a week, we suddenly had a few bob. And... We'd never stopped drinking for about 15 years. I mean, you know, one of the Rolling Stones says, ask me about the 70s, don't ask me, ask somebody else. They remember, you know, they remember it. <laughs> Clifton uh, in the middle of the mountains was uh, the only place where Donald McCann might emerge in the middle of the afternoon reciting uh, quotations from uh, one of the Henry's plays and asking me to continue or not needing to ask me uh, I feeling the same effects of the sun and the afternoon in Clifton all those 30 years ago. I do know that haven't been the kind of person which I am, but the kind of behaviour or indulgence in alcohol that I went on with uh, haven't, by the grace of God, got away from it. I, I mean, I, I certainly am a better actor for having got away from it, but that means by extension or implication that it was worth having something to get away from, which sounds a bit silly, and I don't in any way mean to say that it's, it's you know, be a reformed drunk, you suddenly become brilliant or something like that. It's, it's not true. But At there were, but there were minor. I mean, what would happen, maybe Donald might have a few jars and there would be a bit of a row, but he, his, he would uh, apologise so abjectly, you know, that, that you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't hold it against him. Nobody ever did hold it against him. I mean, he, he got into a few scrapes off and on and might have done inappropriate things, uh, I suppose, but you just couldn't because he would disarm you with, with his humour and the fact that he was a very human person underneath and a very warm-hearted person doing nice things for people as much as he could that uh, you couldn't hold it against him, you know. Donald McCann, I, I knew he was a great drinker and I was not a fan of drinkers in the main. My grandmother had drunk herself to death. My grandfather narrowly escaped that when he gave it up in the 50s. My father was a drinker. When I mentioned Donald's name in Dublin, some said with that special tone reserved for complicated rivalries among actors that his work had grown mannered. Mm. <laughs> I had some tricky memories of encountering Donald myself. Once in the Abbey foyer, I had seen him crawl vertically along a wall, if that is possible, <laughs> using the wall for a reference as if the entire Abbey were pitching in a great tempest. I suppose his life was a great tempest mostly. I thought it was a sorrowful sight. For Donald was blatantly an actor of singular greatness. It was just the drinking, the drinking, the astonishing and old-fashioned drinking. Tales of him drinking all day in a certain bar and being locked into the premises by the barman at night with 20 double vodkas lined up for him on the counter. The peculiar, murderous kindness of a barman. One thing I decided last week, for some reason or other, I don't know why, was that the expression of somebody being born out of his time is rubbish. Mm. Because people are born in their time. Jerry Stembridge. Isn't that true? Yeah. 
Brazil. I think it's a silly, it's the most silly thing. And this bloody thing of what he would have, uh, you know, if he'd, if he'd only hung on a few years, you know. He, if he'd hung on a few years before, you know, when the shares went up, you know. Yeah. You know, he, he could have died from the drink, you know. Oh, yeah, and, and what did he die of? Oh, the drink. <laughs> this is not a play, declared Donald. I know what it is. It's a performance piece. For him, I could intuit. It was certainly not a play. It was a conduit or a system of complicated, many-coloured wiring back into the past and deep into his own bright, dark self. His purpose was somehow, by doing this play, to resolve the great unresolvable thicket, the muddled wool basket of self at the very heart of him. The distressing matters that had no doubt led him to drink so fiercely, consummately even, and that now in his oddly sainted sobriety was there even more fiercely to be rawly contemplated, understood, included, and by this means withheld, stopped from killing him. Myself and Sean McGinley were rehearsing a Sam Shepard play at the Royal Court. The director was rehearsing us late and it was going into about 20 past seven, and we literally, which we'd never done, we said, we're leaving, the two of us, we're leaving. There's a man upstairs, uh, we have to see, it's our only chance to see him because we're in technical tomorrow night. So we're going up to see him, and it was Donald in the Steward of Christendom in his first preview. And, I mean, it's like when you see something that great, if you hadn't seen it, you wouldn't have known what you missed. But when you see it, you see it, and it remains forever. In the play, which... I, I find in my own personal way that play is a character as well. So these are just constituent pieces of of the whole, hopefully of the whole thing. That because uh, you know, I, I good playwrights don't write. Of course, they do. They write line by line, or word by word. But they write from an idea that is a character. I mean, they say. I mean, otherwise, how do they say it's not coming out right? I mean, what's not coming out right? It would be very hard to explain, I'm sure. But when it does come out right, they know, and it has this thing. And, and the strongest, maybe, thing of, of that was when I read The Steward of Christendom. And I just... I mean, that play is a character in itself. I was trying to obviously work out what it is that he does. What does a, a shaman like that, what is he up to? How does he do it? And, and I don't know really how he does it, but it seems to me that what he employs is something that you could only call a sort of extravagant minimalism, a concentrated mode that is very difficult to employ and very rare. And he does that in order to access down to the core of something, so that for instance, if, you, if, he has, if he's working with a long speech, which may already have an emotional core to it, he'll put tremendous pressure on that core to go down even further, to the point where, at some stage for an audience, it's almost unendurable. I just love people who write. I love writing. I, I think it's... And I think that actor's job is to serve writing. That is his job. It's, it's not uh, self-advertisement. It's not dressing up. It's not passing the time. Somewhere, some tremendous fracture must have taken place. I mean, it happens to everybody. Something happens in everybody's life that breaks everything, so that everything has been put together, has to be put together again. And uh, as far as I, one, you know, as far as I can judge, of of people, of artists, they're. It's their attempt to put the thing back together when some of the bits have been discarded accidentally or lost, or the pieces keep forcing themselves out from the centre. It, it's terrifying the power that theatre can have on people. I got a terrible feeling during, I think it was in the Tyviak one night, when I, I just wickedly, um, méchantly, uh, held a pause for say about three seconds longer than I had done previously and, and just to see would anybody move 
and I was sort of raking the audience with in the type a rake takes about point two of a second mm. you know, but and nothing happened and it was just this total rapt attention on me well, of course it was on Brian Field but in the pause mm-hmm. then I, I flattered myself that it was actually on me because I wasn't saying that in the Brian Field but an extraordinary power of of actually being in control of those people and, and, and that's terrifying you're frightened by that oh it's terrifying mm-hmm. That, I mean, it, it's it like I mean I could have been Paul Golden, you know. Mm. I could have said, "You will now wake up and and you'll be at a Lennox Robinson play." He had the bar so high; it was wonderful. The intensity of the rehearsal room, the focus, the concentration—he was so clever that you had to to play at your top whack, and it was brilliant. And it was the case every night you went out on stage. He was electric. It was real. It was really exciting going into the theatre to work with him every night, to learn every night, to see how he'd, you know, if there was a little blip at all, like Donald would just, or how he'd try new things or twist things around, or just genius at work. In the dead, he's amazing listening, you know? I think he's just amazing in that last scene with Angelica and, and he has that kind of nobility and a dignity. I mean, he's fantastic as that. You see, he's so strong as a personality that you're kind of... You're kind of... You'd be inclined to cast him as the tough or the strong or the, you know... But actually, as that kind of victim character, he was amazing because most victims are milk and water... But he brought that whole rush of passion and emotion to it. And at the same time, kept Gabriel Conroy, you know? It was just amazing, you know? What were you like then? Snow is falling, falling in that lonely churchyard where Michael Fury lies buried, falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end, upon all the living and the dead. What? Nothing. The character uh, was a sculpture. I was looking for an actor able to play an artist. Donald Kahn entered. Bernardo Bertolucci. And immediately I felt for him. I felt I found my artist. And then, quite fast, I tried to, to think, why do I like him so much? Why? He, had, he was almost bald. He had very, very short hair. And he looked like a convict a bit. These are for you. I thought, what, what was I looking for in an actor to be artist, to be an artist in the film? And in fact, I understood it when I saw <laughs> Donald. I want that this uh, artist has some color of criminality. It could be a criminal. And the idea, artist criminal, an artist is a criminal from the society in some way, because an artist is in some way always very transgressive, always very uh, against. And that was for me not only a great moment because I found my character, I found my actor, but also because the actor made me understand the character. and. Uh, this kind of uh, feeling of great humanity, but sudden danger. There's something dangerous in that man. Stealing Beauty 
I think that uh, identify much with uh, Donald, more than with everybody else in the film. And uh, I really don't know exactly why. And it was great the day that uh, he had to draw the girl. And I found out that he knew very well how to draw. You know, it's um, not every actor is able to do it. But it's something that he's been doing all his life, I found out then. He, was, he is very discreet and uh, he has a fantastic, delicate way of not being intruding uh, Donald. And so he put his pencil on, on uh, chalk on, on the page and I could see from the movement of his hand that uh, he was a real artist. And um, And, of course, a criminal. Well, I mean, I mean, he told me this story, that he was in the Irish club one night and there was a knock at the door and a certain party was looking for him. The man came and, said, and he went out the door and this well-known actor, uh, famous actor, uh, said, McCann, you insulted my wife at a party in two languages in, in the form of verse. I want to challenge you to a duel. And <laughs> so... Anyway, I said to him, well, what did you do? He said, I went out into Eaton Square. What else would I do? And we got over the railings. And that was it. And he wouldn't tell me anymore. He wouldn't tell me who won or what weapons they used or anything else. It was, an inf I think that she was not a bit insulted at all. It was a slightly obscene poem in, in, in Irish and English <laughs> that he said, gave to her at the, at the party. But this, her intended husband, uh, didn't like it. We're doing the Cuchulain Cycle for the Yates Festival at the Abbey. And... Uh, it was the first time they were doing the AIDS Festival and Professor Flannery had come over from Atlanta University, which was known as the Coca-Cola University. And they were putting a lot of money into the Abbey to produce big Yates Festival. So they had this big launch on top of the roof of the Abbey and uh, we all turned up at lunchtime to have a few drinks and celebrate the opening. And, of course, there were benches laid out and tables and huge umbrellas with Coca-Cola all over the place and Donald saunters in and a gentleman comes up to ask him what he'd like to drink and he says do you have a Pepsi that was it and that's the mark of the man immediately punctured he's quite a serious person I think he's a very shy person I think he didn't suffer fools gladly he didn't do small talk or he had great fun in him and divilment but he was a deep person I'm a presumptuous person anyway I, I, I presume that God is there to, to help you when you're really stuck. He lives permanently in his roles on film, especially Bob Quinn's and most especially as Gabriel Conroy in John Huston's film of Joyce's The Dead. But his ineluctable greatness on stage is inevitably being lost as the 200 performances of a play are obliged to fade. People attest that they will never forget him in Faith Healer, in O'Casey's Juno, but nonetheless, they cannot bequeath their memories. We can only write them down in a shadowy record of once highly charged corporeal things. Donald himself felt part of the honour of the theatre was that it is such a ruthlessly temporal affair, being only of the moment and paradoxically its eternity consisting of that, an empty theatre in the darkness content to host its silent shadows not to be tainted with pretending otherwise perhaps, he refused to film the steward in any shape or form and was content in almost a religious way that his work would be seen but then gradually be unseen seen backwards receding, erased removed. This was all Donald's work ultimately and that was accepted by all. I'm not a fatalist but I do believe there's a line somewhere that, that inevitably one you don't follow it. It's, it's, it's the same way as a, a career. I mean I, people talk about careers it, it, as far as I'm concerned a career is something that you leave behind you. <laughs> yes. and, and, and if you look up the word <laughs> in its true meaning, that's mm. what it is. You know, I mean, a snail leaves his career behind him and glistening.
Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. Beyond the dawn, there's peace, I'm sure. That was Sketches of Donal, a programme to commemorate and pay tribute to Donal McCann on the 20th anniversary of his death. You heard the voices of Sebastian Barry, Jerry Stembridge, Andy O'Mahony, Hugh Leonard, Bernardo Bertolucci, Gabriel Byrne, Rachel Dowling, Jim Sheridan, Michael D. Higgins, Kieran Hines, David Harleyhe, Pat Laffin, Neil Jordan, Sinead Cusack, Brian Murray, Donal McCann and myself, Tina Kelleher. Thank you to our colleagues in the RTE Radio and TV archives. To Sebastian Barry, who delivered his annual Laureate for Irish Fiction Lecture, Still Life with Donal, at the Gate Theatre in October 2019. And Bob Quinn's seminal documentary, It Must Be Done Right. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. RTE.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.